Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am one of your hosts, Jess Geyer. I'm one half of one of the games, and I design TTRPGs. And I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hi, Craig. Hello, I'm Craig Campbell, and I am the owner of Nerdburger Games, and I also design tabletop role-playing games, or TTRPGs. I personally think we should be able to call this industry RPGs and computer role-playing games should say CRPGs because we were here first and they can suck it. But for the purposes of clarification, <laughs> it's worth it's worth saying TTRPG every so often um, to reinforce that uh, we're not video game people. Anyway, we have a guest here today. Hello, Evan, <laughs> Evan Torner. Hello. Hi there. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm Evan Torner. I am a uh, a role-playing game designer and, and scholar. I, it, it, people know me from Analog Game Studies, where I co-edit, and the International Journal of Role-Playing, as well as uh, Games on Demand um, and, uh, and the Golden Cobra Challenge. Those are all sort of institutions I'm part of or, or you know, work in, etc. And uh, I'm, I'm developing another tabletop RPG for 2022. So that also makes me very uh, happy again. I didn't realize how much I missed this design space. Uh, but, you know, with LARPing still kind of in a weird online space or not really going anymore, I, it, it's, it, it's back to tabletop for me. Gotta, gotta adapt. What is it? Adapt, evolve. Uh, I don't know. I'll just add another one in there. Attack. Sure. Other yeah. words, check your, <laughs> check your thesaurus. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I could feel safe going out to LARP again. I'd be very happy to do that. But uh, tabletop. It's coming. It's coming, Jess. Hang yeah. in there. Yeah. Right. Anyway, well, uh, we're, we're talking today about some two excellent topics, a, a, a GM topic and a game design topic. Craig, what are they? Oh, first up is puzzles. GMing puzzles, creating puzzles, using puzzles that you find uh, in published adventures or in other sources. Um, do we want to broaden puzzles to riddles? Riddles are just kind of word puzzles. That's correct. Yeah, I, yeah. I would say riddles are under the larger category of puzzles. And, uh, you know, just kind of, we're not, we're, not, we're not here to design some puzzles for you, although we, we, I'm sure we could put our heads together and do that. <laughs> but the idea is to kind of talk about like just strategies as a GM if you're going to be running a game and prepping a game of how you can utilize puzzles and things to keep in mind when you do that. So uh, who wants to start the ball rolling? I can start. Yeah. Let, let, let's define what puzzles are. People are frequently in that conversation of, you know, are puzzles even a game? And the question is, yeah, sorry, the answer is, yeah, sure. I mean, there are, there are puzzles are so integral to game design that they, you know, are nestled in there, but, but a puzzle on its own is not necessarily a game. It's sort of the accepted definition. And I'm not going to get into the semantics of that. What puzzles do is they create what we call solvers uncertainty, which the question is, can I get the right answer? There is a right answer at the end. And uh, the it was intentional. The designer put it there. And uh, the point is then, can you, you know, follow the, the proper trail of clues and have the right aha moment uh, to to get there. Um, from my own research on puzzles, and again, with puzzles, we mean like visual puzzles, manipulation puzzles. Uh, so visual puzzles, like, you know, you're, you're staring at something and, you know, you have to rearrange the shapes in your mind or something like Moving that. Moving the matchsticks around to create a certain number of squares. Exactly. Those, those types that, of things. That, that, then you've got uh, word puzzles, so crosswords, um, et cetera. Logic puzzles like Sudoku. And, um, and then what we call uh, manipulation sorry, um, um, interactive puzzles or meta level puzzles, often with puzzles feeding outputs that then input into other puzzles. So uh, you've got a, a wide variety of puzzles. And even though, you know, a lot of GMs are like, oh, I don't know if I, I want to, I don't know if I'm that kind of designer. Chances are, if you've played like a big game of any kind, um, everything from Far Cry to, uh, you know, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, there's puzzles in it. There's puzzles all over it. There are puzzles you know, uh, throughout the landscape of Breath of the Wild with all these shrines and, and, um, and, and, you know, little finding uh, um, uh, Korok seeds. And, yeah. and you, you begin, you begin to think, oh, like, this is a, like, fighty, explorey game that actually is made of puzzles. And, and so you can really think of puzzles as a major building block of, of game design. And, and they are easy um, to kind of, um, 
conceive of if you know what you're doing. And, um, and I get easier to, to, to write over time. I've discovered that I'm better at writing puzzles now. And because the main thing what you're doing is managing player emotions. Uh, when you're creating it, you always think about, okay, what's the theme of what, or what's, what's the you know, general story maybe behind this puzzle or where, where, where is this coming from? That's going to motivate a lot, of, uh, a lot of it. You're going to come up with the answer, right? Because they have to arrive at a real answer at the end. And then you work your way back to the beginning so that, that you can give the players enough lead uh, sort of string so that they can manage their frustration up to a point where they have an aha moment and then they reach your right answer. That's more or less uh, puzzle design and everything else, as they say, the devil is in the details. Everything else is the details. Yeah, I, I'm glad that you brought up Legend of Zelda because I would love if all of my games felt like the Legend of Zelda dungeon. I would love that. <laughs> uh, I, I I grew up playing the Legend of Zelda games, um, especially Ocarina of Time, and loved Breath of the Wild. Um, and I, it's really funny because I mentioned the Water Temple last episode. Uh, the Water Temple is one of, in Ocarina of Time is one of my absolute favorites. And um, you're a lot of a lot of the puzzles that I've used in my games have been like, okay, you're in a room, here is a puzzle that you're going to solve. Like, can you move the little horsey statue in the right direction to make the water come out? Like, whatever it is. Uh, but the water temple itself is a whole dungeon that is a puzzle and you have to be working the water levels the entire time to be able to access certain areas and rooms. And if, if, if you've ever played that level, you think about what you could do to not just make it like make it thematic with what's going on and give them it make make the puzzle elements feel like they are approaching that aha moment make it every every move that they're making feel like progress the problem i've always had with uh, playing puzzles or running puzzles and games is that at, at some point they either get frustrated and just want to give up or just like okay i'm just going to hit the buttons until something works but making it so that there are consequences that happen, um, positive and negative consequences that happen with each move that they make during a puzzle can really keep the interactivity and that engagement going. I feel like that's one of the biggest uh, issues that people run into with, with a puzzle is like, if the puzzle is, here's all the stuff you have to do, all the things you have to figure out, move this, move that, you know, noodle this out, whatever it is, in order to have that aha moment and, you know, solve the puzzle. But if there's no reinforcement that you're like on the right path, or you're discovering some of the right things, that it feels like you're just floundering right. for the entirety of the puzzle until suddenly one thing happens and, and everything falls into play. So one of the things you can keep in mind as a GM is to kind of if you're going to introduce the puzzles is like a puzzle is have it be multi-part um, is have there be like, maybe there's five things that the, the, the characters need to do or the players need to, to figure out in order to open the temple door. Mm -hmm. uh, and four of them are, are kind of easy. Four of them are things that you can just kind of feel like, okay, well, I figured this little thing out and oh, okay, that's what I got to do. I got to move this block this way or, or spin this thing around or what, um, or I have to go and find a key or find a, you know, a, a block to fit in a, in a depression or something. Um, so that like you have all these little pieces that are getting you closer to the ultimate solution of the puzzle. Um, and then along the way, you can also be seeding some of the things that will help to solve that big thing so that when you go up to deal with the big part of the puzzle, the, the, the most complex piece, the piece that's going to take longer to figure out, you're actually getting clues along the way. Um, so solving those other four pieces helps you solve the big, more difficult part of the puzzle. Um, no, that that's what a, like a murder mystery is all about. Yeah. You're eliminating suspects. You're, you're removing um, potential uh, complications from that, that would prevent you from actually like making the deduction. Yeah. That was an inch. That was a point too. I made like, yeah, I, I made a, made a note here too, is that like mysteries in them in, in and of themselves are effectively puzzles as well. When you think of just like, you know, investigative games with a mystery, you're now with, with, with those types of things with, an, especially with RPGs, <laughs> you can be a little bit more broad. You can have people, you can get, get, get the characters to a clue in a lot of different ways where, you know, like some puzzles, it's like you have to kind of, you have to do this thing in order to get to this clue. 
So yeah, with, with mysteries and clues, you can wander around a, a few different ways to get some of that information. I, I've just, I've written um, several like, like Baker Street adventures. So like you had to like come up with the entire crime and all the clues that go forward. And you have to have a lot of clues. You, if you as the puzzle master know what the end result is and everybody else at the table has no clue. And it's going to be very frustrating for you to be like, ah, the answer is so obvious. Like very clearly it's speak friend and enter safe, safe friend and dwarven. Like, no, obviously it's not obvious to everyone else. You're the one who came up with it. You got to give them, give them a lot of hints. There's a reason it took the fellowship as long (laughs) as it did to figure out the puzzle at that door. Remember they sit there for a long time trying to figure out how to speak friend and enter. Mm -hmm. It, l- it lends it gravitas. I actually, that's where, where I want to go with this. <clears throat> when I said the theme and the story really ought to motivate this puzzle, um, that's what I mean. Because when, when you're um, uh, generating that massive pile of clues, you really want to know what is that thing that happened, that thing that happened at the center of the mystery that then has generated this fragmented grenade of clues that are all over the place or whatever that, that that will then lead as a trail to to the crime but not obviously and not directly and and the stronger that event is in your mind as a designer the the more you have more basis you have to make those decisions on okay what do they find and that that the clues themselves are going to be part of your storytelling mechanism the, the other thing i was thinking about is the way that you can use difficulty of puzzles uh, and even clues also as, as markers along a story path. Um, I, I wrote a LARP called a, a Voyage to Venus, Planet of Death, where um, early in the LARP, they get a very murky signal from Venus and, and they're on the spaceship. And I, I designed a basically jumbled word puzzle. And the way I jumbled the words made them possible to figure out so mm-hmm. effectively you know I, I mean i just grouped all of the vowels all together and and then and then grouped all the consonants together and then said here's here's that try to make it and of course there's absolutely no context or Woof. clues to, to even figure that out and that was on purpose right so i made an unsolvable puzzle and and i i, I was i was welcoming players to both bump their heads against the wall on it but also to realize that it was kind of futile and they would should then move on to something else. So it was a very specific thing I wanted to do with that because then in the next act, they get a much clearer signal coming through the Venus. Ah, because their, their ship is now closer and they get a less jumbled puzzle. And then, and then at that point I dialed the difficulty. So it was relatively easily solvable within about five minutes. Cause I didn't want the, again, the communications officer to be sitting there solving the puzzle for half the LARP, but that they at least have that aha moment of, Oh, we've deciphered the signal and it says blah. So, uh, you know, you can use difficulty and clues as, as you know, your core storytelling, um, uh, you know, instruments. And I, th- I think uh, the, the, you know, puzzle itself is with, with the right answer at the end is, is just sort of an alibi to do that kind of story manipulation. I love that. And you could use like skill checks in that in a really fun way. Like, okay, you start off with this basically unsolvable puzzle, but with every success of a skill check, you get another, something else is decoded. You, you know what one of the, like if you're doing um, a cipher puzzle, now you know what one of those letters is and you can go on from there. Like incorporating skill checks to make a puzzle easier or harder, or like you mentioned with that progression, even um, always giving them a way that they can eventually get to the answer. Even if you're giving them something really, really hard. Um, when you said grouping all the vowels and all the consonants, I knew exactly all of that. Never, never going to happen. <laughs> and, and you can build the, you can, you can build the reward. You can tailor the reward to how far along the puzzle uh, spectrum the characters were when they figured it out. Like if they figure mm-hmm. it, if there's five, if there's five ways, five levels of difficulty, they're not going to figure it out on the first level, but they might they'll, they'll almost certainly figure it out at the last level. And if at, at the last level, like let, let's say the puzzle is, you know, there's five levels of difficulty and the, the puzzle is going to get you into, you know, the lich's tomb. And on the other side of that door, you're going to have to fight a lich and whatever the lich has got with them. But if they've solved the puzzle a little earlier, you behind the scenes can just say, okay, well, as a reward for solving it at difficulty two or three, rather than all the way down at the, you know, the easiest difficulty level, um, the lich doesn't have quite as many guards with them. Um, 
uh, especially if they uh, expended, you know, if the, if the characters uh, expended resources some way or the other beforehand that would help that help them with the puzzle, but that would also potentially help them with the fight, then you're, you're, you know, like you're giving them a little extra something like, well, you used up some, you know, some one shot items and, you know, single mm -hmm. charge, you know, uh, magic items or whatever that uh, would have benefited you in the fight. But, you know, there's not going to be as many baddies <laughs> because I you, uh, you got through the thing faster that's like a really good carrot for that and then like the opposite end of that is like especially if you have a puzzle that can be solved you know given time but if you did it cleverly you know if like they were actually working and using their brain they could solve it faster you can add some of the more of the stick like yeah the room is filling up with sand or there are poisonous snakes in here and they're biting you or or uh this this ship from venus or whatever whatever they're they were tracing with with your larp um they are firing pulses at you and damaging parts of your ship those can also motivate the characters to like okay well we can't just uh plug and chug on this we have to actually think and use our our resources uh so that's kind of the, the opposite end of making it easier for them down the road and, and I think the the, um, uh, the the question about, okay, it's easier for, for you to think up the puzzle, but it's hard for them to solve. That whole difficulty question should hopefully be solved before you even run the session with your, your players. This is where, 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 I, where I'm going to be controversial and saying you should plan the puzzle out far enough in advance that you should at least run it through a test solver who's not in your campaign mm -hmm. <laughs> or or who knew who's not in the session so that that then that person can and, and again the best feedback in that puzzle is to is to watch them go through it and 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 kind of explain maybe their logic oh i think it's this oh it's not this and 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 kind of work it out so that you as the the game master of this module will then know oh this is uh, this is the rate at which they will complete this puzzle, and and this is approximately where they're at. And of course, you, you know, having multiple test solvers allows you to have a wider sample. But even one will tell you a great deal about you know did what what was the thing that you just created a turkey or or actually a, a real uh, puzzle. And we can also we can also go into traps if you want to. I mean, that's an, that's another like. Um, gray area between what, what is a puzzle what is a trap but uh but but you know uh pu puzzles themselves should exist independently of your in adventure and really should be solvable by a test solver without them being in your campaign having a test solver is a is a really good resource i was a test solver for a logic puzzle for a larp once turns out uh the logic was really flawed and you weren't able to solve the puzzle even if you were good at logic puzzles like i am i love them um so it's if you have someone who can test it for you who's not at your table i would recommend going that route a thought i had too was if you if you're using puzzles regularly in your in an ongoing campaign and you've got players that are into them like you shouldn't probably be throwing puzzles into the game a lot unless the players like that's that's the sort of thing they enjoy if they're just going to get frustrated and be angry like mm -hmm. don't do it <laughs> there's a different game to play or a different type of game but you can also build an expectation too where like you know just using the difficulty um you know like five levels of difficulty to solve the puzzle and the the end result is different based on how quickly or how how many how many levels of difficulty you had to go through it, you, you don't necessarily have to say it in game, but you can, you know, run a puzzle that way. And then after the game session, say, tell, tell everybody, especially if they start talking about the puzzle and they seem really interested in how it was developed and how you, you brought it into the game and say, oh, well, this was the logic behind it. Like if you had solved that at difficulty level two, there would have been less guards, if, but, but it took you to difficulty level four. So you, your, your fight with the Lich was a little tougher and the players will start to expect mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And they will, that will help to inform them making choices in future puzzles where they'll, they'll get to that, that hard difficulty and be like, well, if we can solve it here, it'd be great. Cause it's going to help us in some way down the road. But if we don't, it's not the end of the world. Let's press on and, and get to the next phase of difficulty which will be a little easier and we'll just have to deal with more crap um with whatever the you know whatever's behind the puzzle um and and it, that can help to motivate to get players i think too off of like getting hung up like th that's one of the things you run the risk of the most with a puzzle is like they here's a here's a certain here's a puzzle it's this difficult and if the players really get hung up even though you have plans for 
you know, giving them clues or bringing the, the, you know, like they may, they may not take the bait to go to get those clues and they'll just sit there and, and noodle on that harder difficulty version forever. And sometimes you have to just be like, okay, and, you know, and if you do, if you need to, sometimes it's okay to meta GM it and say, Hey, you know what? There's clues. You can just walk away from this thing. If they've been, you know, swatting at it for a long time and they're not getting anywhere, mm-hmm. just say, Hey, roll a wisdom check. Yeah. Roll a perception check. There's a door, there's a secret <laughs> door over there and behind that door, there's a clue and blah, 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 blah. or, or just, you know, just like, you know, make it clear to them, like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm not here to, I'm on your side. You know, I'm a player too. I'm here to have, make sure we all have fun. Um, like there's, there's more to this. Don't, don't get hung up. Just, you can literally tell them that and just like assuage there. Cause you, you might have players potentially who are getting really anxiety filled mm-hmm. over that. So like, you know, you can, and that's also just, you know, reading the table and knowing the players and giving them I, and, 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 the right and, and, kind of experience. And that's where puzzle design is much more about regulating the emotions of the players. And actually it's one reason why I like designing puzzles in the first place is I feel very, very close to a player when I'm designing a puzzle, because I have to really be in that mindset in their mindset when they're going to approach the thing. I have to think about, you know, you do that this all the time, of course, with um, user design questions for your published RPG materials and, and, you know, general, use cases but particularly with a puzzle like the art form relies on you really being able to gate these different stages of of discovery and 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 player emotion and 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 that's what i what it's actually why i like to design them is because because i feel very very close to this potential player um and 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 to to actually see where their attention is going to be what what are they going to do what what clues will work and and so it's not only an aha moment for the player it's also a little thrill for me when when it when it works you know and 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 obviously it's painful when it doesn't work um but but then that's when you go to the meta level or you 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 really say you know i put this in because i thought it would it would lead to this one place it didn't and and now it's not worth it for you to do it so let's do something else yeah it, it's it's always so fun to have that that moment as a player or just like when you're like think about when you play puzzles on your own like they're fun they're fun to solve it it's a it's a nice little rush of dopamine for everybody at the table that's not just like oh we killed the monster by throwing math at it uh, that's always fun, but you can like, cause you mentioned traps earlier. You can also make monsters part of the puzzle too. Just taking a page out of the legend of Zelda playbook again. Um, like I, I, they can have weak spots that you can discover through creative play. That's kind of a puzzle or the, I can't remember the game it is, but it's a text adventure where you have to attack in a certain way to get through, um, there, there are all sorts of, of ways you can incorporate that into your regular play that aren't like, okay, here's a puzzle, here are buttons to push, here are some levers. It's more like, yeah, you could get through this with brute force. It's our normal kind of thing. But if you were smart and you're thinking, that keeps people on their toes and keeps them active, even when they're not necessarily in the initiative order. They can always be thinking like, okay, Okay, well, I, I'm analyzing all these pieces. What can I do here? Also, a note too, I think trial and error puzzles um, where there's there's only so many ways you can approach something and you just if you just try all of them, mm-hmm. you'll eventually find the one that gets you through is not necessarily a bad thing because it does mean they will eventually get to success. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, you can make when, when they make the error, when they when they do it the wrong way, something interesting can happen that just helps to propel the story or create a neat little story moment or a nice role-playing moment or whatever. Um, so like just having the, the, the characters try a bunch of different things to solve the puzzle. And then each time, you know, like the face on the wall says something foreboding <laughs> to help ramp up the, you know, if they fail, the face says something foreboding and that just ramps up the tension for what you're trying to set up for the, for the story. Question for you. Is it okay for a puzzle to have more than one solution? Oh, obviously. Yes, of course. Okay. There you go, everybody. I just wanted to cover that one real quick. Everybody. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. You can have more than one solution. But, but, but I, I, again, the, the, you know, sort of definition of puzzle is that the solutions have been thought up in advance Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's also a form of asymmetrical play in which the puzzle designer has infinite 
means, you know, to level against you, but they're rooting for the player who has no means who are coming in sort of blind and in the dark. Um, and, and, and so it is in some ways, a, a generous form of, of asymmetrical play. And it's even more generous if there are multiple findable solutions, uh, especially, especially if those findable solutions have personal meaning for the characters, right? It sort of depends on what is their, what is their, you know, inclination. I'm reminded of of a puzzle that was happening at like one of the climactic points of a campaign I was playing in. And the puzzle was, we had this weird that we had found sessions back. We found this weird map of all these geometric designs and we didn't know what it meant intersecting lines and stuff like that. And then we ended up at a place where there are these weird floating crystals. And if you touch them, you were transported somewhere else, miles away into some place. Uh, well, the map apparently corresponded to that and there was a way to find it out, but there was this adventure in like, okay, but where does this one go? So, um, what what fun things like Craig mentioned, like what fun things can happen if you are going through a trial and error or as you are trying to work out the puzzle, what interesting elements can you do and can you reward them even for trying a solution so they're not afraid? Like, sure, one of these spat me out into a into a cave full of monsters, but the other one like put me in a treasure room. That was pretty cool, but I need to get out of this place. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, definitely managing managing those emotions. <laughs> How can you keep it interesting? Yeah. Uh, are, are we are we puzzled to death, or are we going to? Uh... Oh, I think there's I think there's one more puzzle that uh, we need to talk about, and that's the the puzzle that's a uh, part of our GMing topic today, which is figuring out what your game is about, and more to the point, figuring out what your game is really about. Um, I've talked about this a few different times on, on the podcast. I've talked about it at, on panels and with people that I'm just talking, you know, chatting with and, and mentoring. There's text and there's subtext to everything. Um, sometimes the subtext is almost or completely identical to the text, but there's going to be a level of inference because people look for meaning hidden inside of the truth that they know. Um, so the question becomes like you're designing a game that's about one thing. And on the surface, maybe that's what it's about, but underneath there may be more to it. And if you can tap into that and know and and make choices in your design with the mechanics, with how the game feels, with the themes that you present, um, there's a lot to be said for um, that that subtextual level of what your game is really about. Um, Just to, to, to speak to it, in terms of a game that most of you have probably heard of masks Mm -hmm. masks is about being a teenage superhero and doing teenage superhero things, but it's really about being a teenager and being kind of a little weird and a little outsider and trying to find yourself and you find your place in the world and the mechanics reflect that where you can move your labels around because as a, as a young person, you're constantly kind of figuring out who you are and you're redefining and choosing, you know, stepping into different identities um, and trying to kind of work your way through that. And, you know, on a, on a simple level, that's what I'm, I'm looking at as far as masks. There's a, there's a lot more to masks <laughs> um, and to a lot of other games too, but uh, that's what we're looking at. So what are some ways that we can use um, as designers to, to figure out what the game is really about and tap into that? I think, this, oh, go, go ahead, Jess. No, I was going to say, this is where your English education comes in. You should have listened to your English teacher in high school, high school, high school. <laughs> Says the high school teacher, teacher, teacher. <laughs> well, well I, I mean, I think the, the um, you know, in, interpretation is is wide open. People can interpret any games any number of different ways or play experience any number of different ways, but uh, it's your job as a dungeon master or event organizer or game designer to as much as possible steer it towards, you know, your vision or or um, what we also call the fruitful void, which is the, the thing you didn't include in your design that your game is still obviously about mm-hmm. and, um, or, or that you, you that, that it was real subtle and that then, you know, it, it, it manifests itself pretty obviously in the design. Um, a good uh, example of this is always the quiet year. Um, the quiet year is a game when 
which you're playing out a year of kind of development in a small community in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. And you're probably not going to survive after this year, but in this quiet year, you do a few projects in the background. And, um, and one of the brilliant parts of this game is, okay, as you're building stuff on this map and it's sort of famous for, you know, uh, uh, putting different locations on a map and saying what's happening there and not really having characters. But when you have a community discussion, your community discussions never arrive at any kind of decision. And if anyone doesn't like the conversation that's happening there, you get to take what's called a contempt token. And, uh, and you don't have to explain that to anybody. You just take the contempt token. And so what it does, again, you know, you can spend the contempt tokens mechanically for, for advantage later on. It does, but that doesn't actually matter. What does matter is you are creating this massive passive aggression engine, right? Where people are doing stuff kind of parallel to each other, not really coordinating, just sort of stating opinions and then being resentful about each other's opinions. That's what the <laughs> game is really about. And so A Quiet Year is, is a game about the fact that communities are often dysfunctional and angry at each other, um, even when they're you know, ostensibly cooperating, even to survive. Um, and, and that, that is really fascinating. And it also, you know, affects all of the belonging outside belonging games, which are kind of, uh, descendants of that in apocalypse world. So I, I really think, uh, uh, that, that that's a, it's a genius move by, by Avery Alder is, is the contempt tokens. Yeah. I, I love how, cause it, that's not one of those games, like, cause the game is sold and marketed as this game where you're mapping out a post of like this apocalyptic world where you're not going to live, but you, you take some time, you think about it. It's there. There are some other games that are like, okay, Hey, this is a game about this, you know, up front, you don't have to do any soul searching for it. Um, but, uh, I, I love, I love those games where, where you, you think a little bit more, in depth about it and it can color so much meaning for you and help you like as a player as a person not as a character learn something about yourself learn something about the world just like any good literature does like that that's where like the line starts blurring between games and and literature itself uh, I, I i love teasing out themes it's my favorite thing to do um i think because you mentioned a little bit, um, and I know that this is a game design topic, uh, but when you're running a campaign as a GM, you might not realize what that theme is. And this is true as a game designer too. You might not realize what that theme is until you're like, sometimes even halfway through. Um, when you write stories, same thing. If you go into a story with a theme in mind, it can kind of feel ham-fisted as you're writing it. Like, yes, this is actually a game about uh, coping with loss and then you're being really ham-fisted with it Babadook um, or you realize halfway through and you can tease out the clues and and grow them as you go back but if you're running a campaign you can't go back you can't rewind but you can start highlighting things more uh, I realized halfway through a campaign I was running that one of the themes was siblings and sibling love and so I started adding more siblings here and there. And I wanted this whole emotional um, portion to be about siblings. You can take that same lesson to your game design. You get halfway through and you realize, oh, I have a lot of elements that are about um, fighting, fighting back your emotions. Can I add a mechanic in there? That's about that same thing. Is that something that I want to highlight? Is it something that's obvious to other people? And then go from there. I think I think the the fluidity too of the the tabletop RPG form is really you know astonishing here, where nothing is hard coded, and so you can begin to shift um, mechanically and and thematically uh, at a moment's notice or or gradually throughout our campaign. Uh, I, I see things both ways. One is is having a strong session zero in which your characters um, are you know are created, but then also you you are discussing with their players very openly, what do you want? And right. then when the players say what they want, you take them seriously and you put those things in. Like if they say, I like pirates, you start creating a pirate crew and, <laughs> and, and you, you know, you, you put it with, with that, with your own flavor or whatever, but you make that pirate crew because they want, they said they wanted pirates are going to put it in. Now let's say those pirates don't come in 
until session four or session five. And by that point, you realize we're going nowhere near water and we are not anywhere near the pirate. That's when you can re- reconsider that pirate crew that you created or, or that you can, um, and you, you can kind of say, well, they, they said me those things, but that was not the direction we actually went. So I'm now going to interpret the direction we're actually going and adapt um, so it's good to have that communication up front and actually players like it when you just seem to be listening directly to their needs and, and giving them the thing. So it's not like you're not like being clever by, by listening to their needs and ignoring them. You're doing a, a bad thing. If they, if they, if they <laughs> yeah. say, here's what I fantasize about, they're telling you their fetishes. You should go there. <laughs> you have to go there and, 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 and give them what they want. And that's also going to produce new themes, right? They're, they're not going to go about you know, fulfilling that fantasy in a, in a way that's different than what they're already, you know, kind of predisposed to do. And so that's, it's, you get to know the players better, you get to know the characters better. And then at that point, you can do your interpretive work saying, okay, but there's this other substructure here, and I'm going to see if that works. And, and it, I guess the advice for game masters and designers, is to always like, be gentle first about that, that, that shift in direction to be like, I'm going to test the waters and see if we're, we're moving differently. Okay. We're moving differently. Now I'm going to make a stronger mechanical move in that direction. It's, it's, it's more awkward where you say, okay, uh, you're, uh, you're a big, you know, adventuring party, but it all seems like you want to sleep with each other. So now I, we're just going to pivot over to a dating game. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't actually work for me as a player. I didn't sign on for that, but if, there are more dates in our dungeon crawl that, and that seems to be more and more of an acceptable social interaction. Then suddenly, um, you know, it, it, and again, organically, the campaign will move in that, that thematic direction, even though we hadn't established that beforehand. And you can figure that out too. Like when you play test your game, if there are a lot of themes that people tend to gravitate gravitate toward within your game, hi- highlight those in your highlight those and market those. It's also possible for the purposes of the design that you can you can put those elements of like what the game is really about or what the game might be really about for the right players who want to play it this way mm-hmm. um you know i uh, i designed a game called nowhereville which is ostensibly a stephen king small town where horrible things happen and the characters are fighting to stop those things from happening but the the one of the hooks of the of the game is that the people in the town forget that those things happen. That's why it's that's not just a town full of people who are constantly under a, an intense stress, um, and they also cannot leave. There's a mystical quality to the town that prevents them from leaving. And so you could create a character, and well, like in the game, the characters start to re- they remember these things. They they know the things that are happening as events unfold in this as you're playing. They don't lose those memories. So you could ostensibly create a character that um, when they become active and start fighting against the, the evils of the town, they start remembering things about their own past. And it could be really traumatic things. You could have the character who lost family members or close friends in horrific um, way uh, previous. And it becomes an allegory for under, you know, for, for someone who has suffered um, intense trauma and repressed it through whatever means, whether it's a mental thing or whether they, they self-medicated or whatever. And you can explore the idea of like what, what happens when a character suddenly has to face these um, repressed uh, traumas. Um, not every player or every group is going to be comfortable or interested in exploring that, but the game has a framework built into it that allows that. Or, or you can just play the game where it's like, oh, you're fighting against monsters and making sure other people don't die right now, right in the here and now and hoping for the future. Um, you know, a, another one of the things that the game is about is the town is evil. It's always going to be evil. Like there's no win. Mm. The, the, the fight is the journey of, you know, it's, it's, is it worth fighting even though you're never going to ultimately win the war? You're, you're taking um, what you can from winning the battles. Uh, and that's, you know, ultimately kind of another uh, aspect of what the game is about or can be about for the people who are playing it. Yeah. Thinking about like actually taking the time to step back and think about your game as you're, as, you, as you've written it and think, what are the kinds of stories I imagine people playing in this? What kinds of characters and, and, and connections are they making that I imagine in this? And, and that will help you start teasing out those themes. Um, theme, I need to put my little English teacher hat on here theme is you know 
It's made up of the plot. It's made up of the characters. It's made up of the setting. It's made up of all of the language that you put into it. So it's all of this stuff together and they're all coordinating to create either one theme or usually many other different themes. And it's it's not going to be just about one thing. Even if you are, like I make, I made Moonpunk and the game was about fighting oppression on the moon, but it's really about fighting oppression in your own communities and in the world. <laughs> I knew that up front. I knew that going into it, mostly because it was based off of Amina's a Harsh Mistress. Um, but it's not just about that. It's also about coming together as a community. And it's also about, you know, um, finding your own, you know, style and your own voice. Like there are a lot of other smaller themes that you can put into that. And you can't really control the themes that your players are going to find within that, but you can at least give them an umbrella under which to, to place the stories that they want to tell and give them the tools that they can tell a fun story within your game or a moving story or an educational story. And I, I think I, I also want to emphasize the role of characters in all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, characters as we encounter them in an RPG are a prism because they're the characters that you guys discuss in the session zero versus the character that the player actually puts on the character sheet which is often different or has different other fantasies and that's again when when, when i'm like I, I i have my ear to the ground being like what did the player actually put on their character sheet because that's actually going to also inform their play right you know they're like oh i think i'm just going to play this priest and he he puts down this yeah and i i, I wield a giant you know broadsword i'm like priest with the broadsword is not too typical so i want to know what that's <laughs> about right you know and, and and pursue that and then what i call the play pause moment of like when that character actually is unpaused and and starts moving in the campaign that's a third different character than the character on the sheet the character you discussed earlier and and you have to take them all seriously because that session zero is the group consensus the the player putting it down the character sheet is their sort of private conception of the character and then you know when they come back to the group consensus they're obviously reacting to play Uh, a final word on this is of course uh, noting what the core loop is of your game especially your campaign um, which is what are the players generally doing or or or, and 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 so not only the characters what are the players doing and that eventually will be what your game is about. So if the characters tend to do certain types of activities, then that will that will be, become the theme of your campaign, whether or not you intended it to, to be. Um, it, it will it will quickly you know blossom into that. I remember um, one player who really really liked to haggle for the best possible prices for their inventory items before an adventure. And so, you know, he, he was trying to get the best possible rope and dagger prices in the town and he would go to different stores and it, it, this would all be in character before the, the rest of us, you know, where we're, we're like, we're all set to go. What is this guy doing? He's haggling over rope in three different stores. Um, that's what the game became about was was about us waiting for our fellow party member who whenever we hit a town, which we began to dread, we hated towns because it meant... <laughs> bartering uh, and, and waiting for bartering to happen and it was not actually interesting play for us as players and that then then uh the, the the you know the bartering happened and obviously that player was working through a lot of you know thoughts about the economy about what value is <laughs> about not getting screwed over but in the core loop was telling me this is what this game is now about uh i don't know if there were some epic adventures we had i can't remember anything about that campaign except for dreading towns and knowing that every town meant haggling over to get the absolute lowest price of whatever making a game okay game design idea the game is about dealing with the the rogue who always steals the spotlight would be a fun the 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 jam can be that rogue or something i don't know uh, put that in my little game design notebook. Uh, I think that's such a universal experience with gamers. There's, there's, a, I, I love, I love the idea of the GM there having to negotiate under three different hats. <laughs> like, no, price is 30 copper. Like, it's 30 copper. You have the money. 
right <laughs> um but yeah no um it's just like that that's a form of conflict and conflict is tied to character and conflict is like okay who's who your your protagonists are always going to be your your, your characters like the player characters what opposing forces are being thrown at them is there are if you want um if you want your game to be about or you discovered your game to be about a lot of interpersonal conflict you should have some mechanics in there that are about the interpersonal conflict. Um, if that game that you were playing had some mechanics about, okay, like moving somebody along or, or like what are people doing in their downtime and as they're waiting, that maybe would have been a little bit more enjoyable and less dreadful as you come into a town. Um, if you're, if the conflict is a lot of external forces, like from other like character types or monsters and things like that, 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 that's going to lend itself to a different theme of like a different kind of struggle. And you can also have, of course, the other two types of uh, conflict. You can have like character versus nature or technology. Um, you can also have characters versus the society itself and thinking about what that main conflict is and making sure that you are supplying the game with the resources to include that kind of conflict um, will go will go a long way like with with the means of magic there's a lot of character versus nature like the the, the game is about the climate crisis and capitalism uh, character versus nature and character versus society are like the two main things we need to have mechanics that um, deal with these natural magic disasters that are happening throughout the world otherwise that climate key is not coming in um if if i wanted a game that was really focusing on the economy from the players end, like because in the means of magic they're not supposed to be making a lot of money that's not the point um, but if i were trying to make one where they're like climbing a corporate ladder for example i would want some mechanics in there that have to do with power grabbing and money grabbing think about how you are supplying your conflict within your game with the right supports I took a brief break right there, just gamer game designer in inside moment. Um, I'm critiquing someone's game right now. Um, and I sat down and like, oh, I got to ask them what this game is really about. And I said, I think it's really about this. But this thing that's in the game design actually flies in the face of that. How do we resolve that? Um, so, yeah, <laughs> evolution of everything, constantly, constantly changing, thinking about stuff. That's one of the things that'll come out of, like, you know, we, we, when Jess remarked that, you know, you may not know what the game is really about when you're first designing. I didn't know what Capers was really about until about halfway through the design on a number of levels. Um, I just thought it'd be cool to have a superpowered gangster game. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I realized partway through it that the gambling mechanic is is central to the game where like every skill check every every trade check is a is a gamble is a um is a risk reward kind of situation and you know criminal characters criminals by their nature are gambling with their lives constantly so when i shifted my focus and made and kind of kept in mind that this game is about playing criminal gangsters with superpowers it's really about taking risks and you do it by the portrayal of your character taking risks as a criminal but also you do it in the mechanics by playing this little um gambling game every time you flip cards for a trade check and, and, and go ahead. oh i was gonna say one way that you can kind of tease that out like if you know that you want to make a game about 1920s gangsters maybe read some books and some stories and some nonfiction about 1920s gangsters what themes do people like to talk about within those stories what is important there because having those those cultural touchstones that you know um exist can help you think about what your game is really about too and 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 uh what craig was mentioning with the critique right is is um something that we've been dealing with for decades it's just actually part and parcel of game design uh in the forge era it was called incoherence where we were critiquing the fact that Vampire the Masquerade says it's all about, you know, um, angsty vampire, you know, relationships, and then is very specific about oozy damage. And <laughs> it, it, like that, 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 that was, that was like the, the, the big critique. Like, why, why do you want us to build this type of character? And then by the time we built our character, it's kind of unrecognizable. Yeah. You know, uh, and I, I mean, I, I always like to riff on White Wolf, but I also write stuff for White Wolf. So I'm, <laughs> I'm allowed to do this. And and the the other the other uh, aspect is um, 
uh, Ludo narrative dissonance, right? Where it's like, oh, you you got this this activity you seem to be doing that 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 actually seems to go against the the spirit of the game, and uh, that that was in video game speak in the late two thousands, and like, people will kind of roll their eyes at, at these kinds of formulations, but it is helpful to look at certain games. I mean, I, I'm a games instructor, so I look at student games all the time, and it's a helpful as a baseline to say, okay, you have told me that this is the game what it's about and this is the activity you envision players doing why are they doing it all this other stuff or what what is this mini how come this mini game has now taken over the entire playtime of the game and 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 so that i think is one of the good starting points especially when you're in early playtesting phase to see what happens and and to decide as the designer no 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 this is a bait and switch you are actually playing a gambling game you just don't know it and 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 that's my vision and Boom, I, put, I, I put a period on that, uh, print the PDF, kickstart it, right? You can do that. That is fine. Uh, uh, some people really embrace incoherence as a design aesthetic. They say, this is all poetry. It's all ambiguity. Who cares? Uh, it's all play, right? But for those of us who care about that kind of thematic coherence, we're, I think, trying to map a, a little bit of the, the field of how you do that. Your game doesn't have to be super deep either. Like, like a lot of people like to have deep themes in their in their work, and they they like to have a more literary kind of game. Uh, but I'm also making a game called Dungeon Crawler, where you are just babies crawling through a dungeon. This, <laughs> that's that's it. <laughs> so, <laughs> not babies crawling through a dungeon, trying to work out your uh, parent issues. No, <laughs> well, you're babies. You have no thoughts. Just baby. <laughs> Uh, the the parents, I mean, because as as the player, um, you are the parents of the baby, putting them through this dungeon to see who is going to be the chosen baby. But uh, <laughs> but other than that, but, um, yeah. but those those silly situations can produce really good thematic play. Like like <laughs> for example, you know, with with a baby game, you can always be like. Um, Oh, when you when you succeed, that's because you're like awesome dungeon crawlers. And when you fail, it's because you're babies. <laughs> and, and so everything always has an explanation. Evan, <laughs> please don't put meaning into my baby game. Thank you. <laughs> the, the, your your, your the baby thing, game is, is, is laden with meaning. That's, that's, I that's, know. <laughs> Just, that's the thing. Like, like Evan said, the, the players are going to interpret then they're going to put their own personalities in there. Some people will just be like, oh, cool, babies in dungeons. And some people will, will find so much deep meaning. Yeah. Um, that is the, the one of the great beauties of art mm -hmm. um, is that it is so personal. No matter, no matter your intention, somebody else is going to take it in a direction that you did not expect. One of the first games I ever designed was just a game where I was like, I want, I want the characters to be grandmas. I want, I want to play a game where I can be a grandma doing grandma things. Well, it turns <laughs> out that grandma things are very, um, they're unlimited. Grandmas can do all sorts of things. Your game could be about um, trying to steal Mildred's potato salad recipe, or it could be about um, protecting the uh, president's grandma um, from an assassination attempt. And there's all <laughs> sorts of grandma things that you can do because grandmas are, are not just little old ladies who like to knit. They're little old ladies who like to knit and sometimes save the planet. <laughs> and and you'll be a powerful grandma interiority, right? I mean, grandmas have, have had a lifetime of experiences of, of perhaps marginalization in, in society that you want to explore, but that, that you can also uh, uh, leverage that for, for, you know, extremely deep grandma feels that then maybe translate into meditations in your own life. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can, you can go any, any direction that you want. You just have to design it that way. Well, in the game too, like a lot of your, a lot of your strength comes from your grandchildren. And if you run out of grandchildren to give candy to, then you are no longer a grandma. That's horrifying. Oh <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Holy That's shit. the world of grandmas. That's the world of Whoa. grandma. Yeah, that's really okay. That can be a little dark, Jess. <laughs> you're that not might killing, be I'm, a little dark. You're not killing the grandchildren. Okay. You're, not kill, you're not killing any grandchildren. They are just no longer helping you because they're all they have already been supplied with hard candy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, there's no. I, I realize I why you're like so horrible. Like, they're not killing any grand. <laughs> and grandchildren aren't just children. Just because children's in the title, I'm a grandchild. You are. You are both grandchildren. Okay, I get it. Okay. <laughs> Whew. I'm sorry. I'm I just sorry. I that one. That was almost a bloodbath. 
I guess if you want to change it into a very dark grandma game. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, you, you have a very simple RPG uh, premise, right? You are playing a grandma and and every session you have one less grandchild for some reason i mean i mean that, well, it just yeah, just it, my mind went there and now i'm really like oh, I, and, and like, jess you you could combine the two games and the more babies that die in the dungeon <laughs> the less babies that there are to grow up to be children for the grandma to give hard candy to um if it's, if, if it's their babies in the dungeon is the point I'm making. I keep joking that we're they're, going they're grand, to have their grandbabies. I keep joking <laughs> that we're going to have a suite of family games because we started one of the games started off with um, Let's Be Grandma. And we have this game <laughs> called Dungeon Crawler. And we are also like we haven't really done a lot of design for this game, but we want to make a game called Dad Builder where you build a dad and you fight other dads <laughs> generationally. Um, so now we just need the other family members within that. We can have a full, you know, it's it's one of games is a family company let's be honest <laughs> a new you can it can be like give it a give it a, a thematic name to encompass all the different family games and then just like you know have the sub the subtitle is a new kind a, a new, new kinds of family games <laughs> like they're, they're not family games in the way you think of family games to be that but they be are about family members <laughs> yeah you could do that as like a patreon or a or a, or a, a kickstarter with like a zine thing where you put out a zine every three months with a different family <laughs> member game themed around yeah yeah, we'll probably do Dungeon. I would back that. I would, I'm on board. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, this reminds me of of uh, Patton Oswalt's. I forget which Patton Oswalt book this was. Patton Oswalt describes when he was working in Hollywood as a script um, consultant on early scripts that would come in, and some of yeah, the early doing scripts, punch up uh, er, early script, uh, uh, scripts that would come in would be like fathers and sons go to the moon on the arena and they fight and that is the premise of the movie and he's like you have resolution you have other things you're trying to resolve in your life with this script (laughs) (laughs) i have a very good family relationship evan i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) but 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 and and i didn't just say it it, i remember it was this, this distinctly this moon scenario but then then i was like actually rpgs are a great vehicle for exactly that and 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 where it might have not worked in hollywood with millions of dollars on the line it's great for a uh you know thousand dollar two thousand dollar pdf you throw up right i mean just oh, do yeah. it and... <laughs> oh yeah like pulp pulp is a is a great genre to explore in in uh rpgs everyone likes everyone likes to play campy characters every once in a while and then we always get frustrated when someone plays a campy character in our very serious campaign give them that outlet let them fight gladiatorial style on the moon. I want to make that RPG now too. Fathers right. and sons glad in gladiatorial combat on the moon. Je- Jess, I believe we found a. I believe we found a flaw in having this podcast. Is that just about every episode, one of us says, "I want to play that game," or "I want to design that game," or "I want to back that game." It happens a lot on this podcast. New podcast idea, Craig. What we can do is a spinoff <laughs> called oh. "I Want to Play That," where someone comes and pitches a ridiculous game. Um, and then we then we say, oh, yes, I want to play that. And then the podcast is over. <laughs> you know, Jen, there, there may come a point in all of this uh, where that could be a short third topic for our guests, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We yeah. could take our two topics, sweet, squeeze them down to 25 minutes, and then the, the guest gives us a, a pitch for something really out there. <laughs> all right, Evan, go. This is obviously, you know, competitive crosswords on the moon between fathers and sons, right? And <laughs> where, 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 as you solve the crossword, it, it turns into a giant block uh, uh, damage dealing vehicle and launches at, at your opponent. Um, and then when they when when they're hit by it, uh, they have a wave of of trauma and lost opportunities as they 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 flash back through their life. Um, if you switch that to Scrabble, that's almost like one of the formative experiences or chess I had growing up with my dad being relentless about these games, and never letting me win. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I have to I have to remind people how much negative emotion is associated with most quote unquote classic games everywhere from Monopoly to Sorry, Sorry, <laughs> oh my gosh. Total, right? Poker, everything that people are like, oh, these are, you know, just games that you play. Each one of these games is usually a pit fight to the death in disguise as a game yeah one christmas i accidentally started a fight between my my sister and her uh her then fiance uh (laughs) because we beat them handily in a game my sister and i beat him in a game (laughs) 
Oh, wow. 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 <laughs> yeah. So let's, um, we, we've, we've rambled a little bit about, uh, about this fun topic, but we, we should probably wrap up where we're at that hour point. So Evan, thank you so much for entertaining us and joining us today. Uh, and, uh, where can we find you and your work and what do you have to plug? Let's see here. Um, we've got a new issue of Analog Game Studies at analoggamestudies.org coming out this December. We're very proud of it. And, um, and then uh, we'll be hosting uh, the Generation Analog Conference um, with Asthma Day, uh, again, uh, online uh, in, in, in 2022 with a possible Gen Con presence. But we keep staring at virus stuff and thinking i don't know so so we'll definitely have an online academic uh, uh role-playing game and board game uh discussion at some point in august 22 people can look for the cfp and the game i'm developing now is for the danish convention festival it's called diamond 20 it's about uh 20 guardians who uh who have somehow screwed up running the world and one of them has become a tyrant and the, the others have to rebel but also form a polycule and that's the game um Fun. so yeah I'm, I'm happy i'm happy to be designing it right now and uh it, it's giving me joy in dark times awesome uh again thanks for joining us and you can find me on twitter at at joska or you can find my games at wannabegames.com or on drive rpg or on itch and I am at Nerdburger Craig on uh, Twitter. Uh, the website is nerdburgergames.com and everything is over at drivethroughrpg.com as well, including Secrets of the Vibrant Isle, which just came out this week because I didn't have anything to do for the past few weeks and uh, everything went very cleanly and I was able to punch that thing out. Super excited. <laughs> uh, thank you, Steph Sachs, for our theme song, Avel. And thank you for that on the Creative Commons license. And thank you all for listening. And we will see you back here next time. Bye. Hey, everybody, it's Jess again. I just wanted to make sure that I'm giving proper credit to the song that we used in our opening and closing. That was Avel by Steph Sachs which was licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. Thanks, Steph Sachs.